what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture my name is pat she joined by my trusty co-host in his sequin vest <laughs> sequin jumper dave martin swagger dave how you doing today man what uh oh doing good man doing yeah good. coachella 2022 weekend one in the book we were yeah. there but you can watch the live stream and pretend you were you know it uh <laughs> it, it was funny i i I saw a mix of uh, people on Twitter talking about Coachella. A lot of people who were like, oh, man, you know, wish I was there. All these moments. Check this out. Check this out. Then a lot of people being like, you couldn't pay me enough to be at Coachella, especially right now with like a new COVID wave coming. Oh, uh, you know, it's, it's really crowded. Like someone drew an arrow. It's like the middle of like Harry Styles crowd and was like, how much would they have to pay you to go there right now? Like how much? I was like, yeah, that doesn't seem sound that much fun. But also, you're seeing Harry Styles and Shania Twain together, which is like a what a moment. I mean, we're gonna right. talk about all that stuff in a second. So I, I just want to put a pin in that because I want to plug us first because we've been putting out some good content recently, some good reviews. Uh, we're we're making friends with uh, Camila Cabello fans all over the internet. So uh, hit that subscribe if you're watching YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod. Also got a uh, Spotify and give us a five star rating on there. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're going to be talking about a couple things today. We got some music, obviously. We got some TV shows back and uh, a big installment in a franchise came out this past week that we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about. But let's let's circle back to Coachella. So the Harry Styles thing. I mean, I, I think everybody woke up on Saturday morning. And if you are tuned into Coachella at all, just saw videos of Harry Styles and this performance seemed to be dominating the internet. Was that the case for you as well? Yeah, definitely the first thing I saw and interesting to take in, you know, Harry's been on or he wrapped up his arena tour within the past few months, big blockbuster tour, big earner. Kind of interesting to see what he had in store for this. Obviously no, the new record Harry's house has not yet come out. So it's kind of like a, in between performance and that's what's cool about Coachella as like the lead festival every year is you expect some kind of surprise from a headliner or someone who's close to headlining in this case you get a Shania Twain coming out which is a bit of a closing the circle for 1D fans because there's a famous clip of Harry back when he had the long hair of course and uh, I believe Niall singing that song while playing ping pong or something and now you hear uh, him, uh, Harry and Shania duetting. Man, I feel like a woman. Pretty, pretty awesome. Just because it's so, so out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely out of nowhere pairing. I would never have thought about putting together. However, it's also like really sweet. You know, him talking about like how Shania Twain was one of his mom's favorite artists, brought so many memories uh, to him, you know, thinking about her, uh, her mom, his mom playing her album as a kid. I thought that was great. Um, you know, also just, uh, he has sang this song with, with Casey Musgraves. Um, not, not, not this one, but uh, still the one. Um, right. The, the one they, they sang sitting down with Casey Musgraves at MSG um, back in, I think it was pre-pandemics, maybe 2018, 2019. So, it was in his repertoire. I think the only thing that really bummed me out was uh, Shania's microphone having some technical difficulties right at the beginning. Uh, something you just cannot mess up, Coachella. A moment like that? Come on. No, that is uh, unacceptable, obviously. Uh, 
but yeah, still, still, it's all a great moment. So got did what it needed to do, got the headlines, and yeah, I think that's one of those things. Really, if you're a Harry fan, you like really that was like your motivating factor for going to Coachella. That would like really uh, hit home and make you excited and, and probably satisfied that you got to experience that. Assuming you know you had a good experience in the pit alongside you know two hundred thousand other people. You know, it's a uh, quite the quite the uh, never-ending general admission so i you really have to be i think strategic in how you uh pick where you go at coachella not that i've ever been there but just thinking of other festivals yeah it's it it definitely is one one of the reasons you go to festivals for something like that and uh definitely a moment i was i thought was really cool and, and excited to talk about today you know there were a couple other moments i really thought were worth mentioning um arcade fire yeah, just had this surprise, surprise set mm-hmm. uh, out of nowhere. They just like we're gonna come play at five forty-five on I think it was Saturday, and they they've been doing this a little bit. They uh, popped up in uh, New Orleans and M- in New York City. I don't think it was mm-hmm. MSG, but somewhere else where they did a surprise show. So it it was a surprise, but also one that if you were really paying attention, you probably could have probably could have put some money down on uh, down on and predicted, but. Um, I still think it was really cool, and it seems like it brought a lot of energy to uh, the, the festival when they, when they showed up and, and had the surprise set. So I thought that was really cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to them having a rebound album after their last one. Everything now just kind of fell flat, and we we should be coming out in the next couple of months. Um, uh, yeah, it's actually two weeks, May 6th. Oh, only two weeks. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, RK Fire right around the corner. Um, we got a couple other new songs from... Uh, Carly Rae Jepsen, Jamie XX dropped a single right before and he was performing this weekend. And uh, so some, some really cool, uh, you know, new, new stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Doja Cat also uh, dropped a song from the upcoming Elvis movie. Who knew that she was doing music for the Elvis movie? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, but Dave, I saw a moment you were talking about with one of a band that you really like, 100 Gex. What happened there? Oh, yeah. 100 Gex basically had their mics cut during their end of their set when they're playing Money Machine, their most famous song. And next thing you know, they like turn around, like Dylan Brady like turns around and like their gears getting like hauled off. Apparently it seems like throughout the day that that stage was behind and it just kind of cascaded in terms of Gex is the one who got treated badly at the end there uh, to make room for the next set. So that's definitely uh, disappointing. I feel like you have to plan that around whether it's the offender just immediately gets their mics cut right at the end or you tell the next act to cut a song like just to have it boil down to the mic being cut hours later for someone whose fault it wasn't like that's just seems a bit amateur for golden voice and coachella to have something like that happen yeah i mean for for a band like gex which i mean they've definitely grown in status but are still growing and really need that spot obviously you're saving money machine as the closer and then to have it cut is just like terrible like what an awful look and something that Mm. seems amateurish like you said for them to have happen um yeah i mean what other moments stood out to you anything in particular yeah there's a few things uh you mentioned doja cat i mean she got a ton of love for that set people were saying she could she be like a headliner she definitely has the performance side of things and uh really awesome to see her crush her like that uh, the ADA Rising set was really interesting. Mm. Uh, I thought that was that was cool. Basically, a bunch of like mini solo sets from various people on the label there, including Rich Brian. 
But most surprisingly, a Coachella moment, once again, you had the reunion of 21, the YG K-pop girl group that went on indefinite hiatus like seven or eight years ago, coming back to perform their biggest song. Like That's another one of those unexpected things that something like Coachella can bring you. Also, Brockhampton performed uh, the second weekend of Coachella will be their final show as a band. So they say, and they confirmed that they have one final album coming out in 2022. So I think the thing with Brockhampton, that was a little bit like the boy who cried wolf at this point where it's like, I actually need to see them like go away and be broken up before I really believe it's really happening. But nevertheless, I uh, look like that. That set was pretty, pretty live as I expect from them. And I think one other thing that's Coachella related was that Travis Scott is coming back. There were billboards referencing his forthcoming album, Utopia. Uh, there were billboards like telling you're going the wrong way for people going to Coachella. So it was like very tactically targeting the music industry and people attending the festival. Being like, hey, don't forget, I'm coming back at some point. So that'll be interesting to see how Travis Scott comes back, assumingly later this year. Um, yeah, obviously, given what happened with Astro World. So I think if Coachella brings a bunch of headlines, that's a that's a positive because uh, I feel like most of the other music festivals don't necessarily do this on like a national stage, you know, like they're just kind of like little like local pop-ups at this point but Coachella because the first one and because there's more opportunity for like Shania Twain to show at Harry for example like because that can happen at Coachella I feel like it still makes a lot of noise on weekend one yeah no uh, Coachella always brings something interesting one of the moments I wanted to just shout out real quick was Danny Elfman having just like (laughs) one of the most talked about sets of the weekend he brought out some of the members of Limp Biscuit with a huge orchestra. Billy Eilish showed up at one point. He was playing songs from his former band, songs from the, all the uh, the scores and, and songs mm-hmm. he's written for TV and, and movies. And just like that, that's one of the things you can only see at a, at a festival like Coachella or Bonnaroo or something like that, where it's just like huge and you get these big, really produced moments because man, if you had told me, like, you're gonna have all these people and Danny Elfman would be one of the most talked about sets of the weekend, like, you just (laughs) really can't plan for something like that. Um, Yeah, and you know, with, uh, with Kanye dropping out uh, Mm -hmm. a few uh, weeks before, I think it was three or four weeks before, they were scrambling a bit to get a headliner and Swedish House Mafia was already uh, set to play. And the weekend played with them. And it seems like they actually got a uh, tepid response. You know, it is also important to note that they were the closing headliner uh the weekend with swedish house mafia so uh it was a bit disappointing to see you know some (laughs) videos of the weekend being like you guys want me to end this set right now and things like that but uh you know i think it's also three days in in the hot california sun and you know a lot of uh energy and alcohol and drugs consumed so uh not always gonna get the most energy at the closing act but that's okay and swedish house mafia dropped their this is insane to say debut album uh in 2022 a a group that has been together for i think 15 years now at least um yeah i think it was yeah so it's yeah obviously they weren't making albums together but mixing songs um starting to make music together and one of the one of the, the like seminal house 
EDMX. You know, I think there's an argument in the early 2010s that they might have been like the mm. like most prominent act. And you think about that like closing tour that they had in 2013 when they were at MSG, and it really felt like one of those uh, like final moments of a group. You know, that could have been more, and they just called it off too early. And uh, then they come back in 2019 with a reunion. <laughs> And you're like, oh, okay, so they're not really done. There's too much money for, for them to really leave this off the table. Their solo careers were successful, but I think obviously not reaching the highs of the, them together as a group. And now releasing Paradise again, again, debut album. I mean, Dave, what did you think of this listening to it? Did, were you enjoying yourself? This definitely exceeded my expectations, Paradise again. I just didn't have a lot of hype for a Swedish house mafia comeback, <laughs> despite, as you said, them having a short but prolific run at the top of EDM during the peak of EDM in mainstream music culture, which was the, you know, uh, early to mid 2010s. The bit, this group only existed as a DJ supergroup, you know, Axwell, Steve Angelo, and Sebastian Ingrosso. The three of them were actually only officially this group from 2008 to 2013 and then the hiatus happened so they've actually been on hiatus longer than they were actually active as a group at this point uh and you know i mean i, I remember you know that time of course they had those two yeah. single albums those two compilation albums until one until now 2010 2012 i like the song with pharrell but of course everyone remembers don't you worry child yeah three times platinum really big song one of the biggest house songs of that era you know and i think their music in general the reason i wasn't super hyped for this comeback is because when i think of that music it just kind of reminds me of that time like like avici does as well where mm. it's just a dated style of music for me as someone who's not like a big progressive house not a big deep house fan you know so i'm still morbid curiosity to see like what why are they coming back what kind of music are they going to make because edm is much more different scene now than it is when they went on hiatus and they're coming back in earnest because they went from Polydor records to Republic records. So now they're a universal music group act. So I think they're going to be around a long time if that uh, label switches any indication, but yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised with how many songs I actually were, was digging. Yeah. You know, I, I had similar feelings. I wasn't going into this with, super high expectations that this record was going to blow me away but i kind of expected we would get some you know some moments uh you know we, we had already heard a few of the singles moth to a flame and red light um i think there was might have been one other one but you know so you kind of got a sense of where they were going with it and i think i think one of my fears in making an album uh was that you know, especially with Moths of the Flame being one of the singles, is that it was going to be a lot of like high level guests kind of coming onto each song. And that, that can sometimes feel a little cheap and almost kind of like, is this really like the group showing off or are they kind of just getting like, like the weekend to come in and really like blow their album out? Uh, and I think we got a good mix of it. I think there's some high profile features, but really the second half of this album is all just them mixing and, and doing house stuff you know and i i think there's quite a few songs on here that i thought were pretty eclectic and um really enjoyed some of the features a lot but also really enjoyed some of the songs that didn't have features too so i was uh i was pleasantly surprised by this 
what did you uh what like stood out to you on first listen yeah like i said just the number of songs that uh i i took away uh from and actually feel like were really interesting because i think a lot of times with house music as someone who's not like a hardcore house fan is like those loops the the repetition that kind of factors into a lot of like house instrumentals can kind of like lull you into complacency you know when you know if you're at the show or you know you're you're rolling whatever it is it's kind of what you want but like it's not for everyone it's not usually for me uh but I, i was surprised with like how like inventive some of the production was like i think a song early on uh just an instrumental track mafia the track mafia that dude that was like the energy of that song felt like it should have been in like a blood soaked a rain soaked bloody brawl in some sci-fi movie or something like there were just a lot of like cool moments on this record overall and yeah i was happy to hear that i i think that that stretched where you get moth to a flame which is you know i think an absolute banger abel sounds great on that track but then you get Moth, uh, Moth to a Flame, Mafia, Frankenstein, and Don't Go Mad all in a row. And you're just like, whew. And then uh, two tracks later, because Paradise Again, the title track, is kind of a whatever track to me. But Lifetime with Ty Dollar Sign 070 Shake also a standout to me. I was like, oh, this is a great middle run. And then it gets to the second half of the album where you, when you get Red Light uh, for you. Um, I think even it gets better. I thought it was pretty good. So there's a, there's quite a few on here. I really was like, Oh, that's great. But yeah, mafia, I think was the clear standout for me. I, it felt like a track that we're going to hear so many like remixes to, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of not only EDM remixes, but like rappers, like going over it in like a mixtape or something like that. It just feels prime yeah. to be used over and over. Sure. 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 Yeah. I mean, red light, I hadn't heard it as a single, but really expert use of obviously Sting's performance on Roxanne, Roxanne. the police classic. That was a really interesting way. And the, the, the production on that song isn't like fading away just so they can showcase mm-hmm. Sting. I think it really complements it well. Uh, yeah. And like that run you referenced, Frankenstein with Rocky. I mean, Jesus Christ, like I haven't heard an ASAP Rocky feature that goes that hard in a while. Like, I'm a big fan of like rap trap remixes. Obviously, Sweet Shots Mafia doesn't make trap, but this sounded so good. This is like just a mosh pit banger. But Rocky does so many different flows on this song. And then the beat switches up a few times from Sweet Shots Mafia, too. Like, I think that's just a complete, complete banger. And then uh, right after that, Don't Go Mad, that has a really awesome progression, really awesome build that you kind of associate with like pump up. Uh, electronic songs you know it's funny I, I don't love moth to a flame it's been getting a lot of acclaim but i can't help but think of the weekend's other edm songs he's done like uh obviously the bunch he did with daft punk on starboy as well as even his single with gasafelstein lost in the fire mm. like, i think i just like all those songs more so i was like ah oh, this is this is all right but i like the other ones more yeah no i, I agree i think that he has better ones but i still thought that was pretty good um yeah, I want to just jump to Lifetime real quick. I, what a great look for 070. You know, mm. a, an artist I think we both believe in and think has a promising career ahead of them. And um, I was really pumped to hear her on this. And whenever she jumps in, I thought it was great. Tied dollar sign, I was a little bit like, eh, not as interested in on it. But right. um, I, and there were points in, in the track that I, I thought were a bit more boring, especially like in the middle when things kind of drop out. But when that beat comes in and 070 is just singing over it, it's it's really, really great. Um, 
Yeah. Any other songs that stood out to you? I also like uh, Time. I thought the tempo with like the horn production was really appealing on that one. Um, but yeah, this was uh, definitely better than I expected. And, um, you know, I didn't talk about EDM too much. I know we got a Flume album coming out that I'm excited for. But uh, yeah, definitely interesting to have a house album that I think is trying to be a bit more than just a traditional house album. So, you know, in in preparing for this, I didn't realize that Switch House Mafia was the first EDM act to headline MSG, Madison Square Garden. I would have thought for sure Daft Punk would have had that distinction, but that's not the case. Yeah, they just didn't tour, right? They just exactly. like, they could have done. Yeah, they definitely could have. And Avicii, I'm surprised, wasn't, but maybe maybe he was like right at the same time as them. But yeah, that's that is kind of crazy. Um, I guess I definitely uh, pleasantly surprised by this. I think it's uh, it's nice to have them back, and I think it'll be nice to kind of hear them working with uh, some some of these upcoming artists uh, for sure. So we'll be adding one of their songs to our nostalgia best of 2022. But Dave, why don't we um, switch gears to TV and go to a show that you've talked about in the past and I still haven't listened to, but uh, My Brilliant Friend came back for its fourth season. Is that right? Third season. Third season. Yeah, so My Brilliant Friend is a Italian co-production between HBO and the Italian broadcaster RAI. And this is the third season. Uh coming out on hbo for us and first since season two came out in early 2020 so it's been about two years and this series of course is the adaptation of elena ferrante's best-selling quartet of novels the neapolitan novels my brilliant friend is the name of the first novel and thus the name of our television series here uh season three is named those who leave and those who stay aka the third book's title and I really enjoyed this show uh, through the first two seasons because I think it does a lot of things that we don't usually get. And I actually think season three is the best season yet of this show, which makes me really excited for the fourth and final season that we know officially is coming out, adapting the fourth book. And it's not that anything like new per se is happening in season three versus the first two seasons. It's, it's more of what we know about this story these two young girls with a very complex friendship coming of age in post-war Italy in Naples specifically starts out in like the 1950s by season three though we're kind of into the early 70s as our two leads Leno and Leela have kind of crossed over into adulthood and are you know in their late 20s at this point interestingly though the series did not recast our two leads through the first three seasons you still have uh, Gia Garace and Margarita Mazzucco. If I, I've got those names wrong for sure. You still have them as Leela and Lenu, even though they were originally playing them as like teenagers and now they're trying to pull off being like late 20 somethings. They do their best with the wigs and the makeup and like the fashion and stuff in season three. But I had a hard time sometimes not placing them as way younger than they're supposed to be playing. And they actually are getting recast in season four. But those two performers are like so compelling. And I feel like so like attached to these characters that I understand why they wanted to do it with season three. And ultimately, I feel like that connection, that like through line really helps that like we hadn't seen them be recast yet. So 
I think just like thematically, the show is really impressive because, and this obviously is all really coming from the book, of course, but just that, that coming of age theme, really intense hardship of the time, but also really omnipresent struggle of gender roles and gender norms and how that's changing in their culture. Now at this time in season three, we're experiencing a lot more like political upheaval and like class struggle. And we're seeing like open conflict between fascist supporters and communist supporters. It's uh, the years of lead is the name of the time in Italy. And we've seen the women's liberation movement popping up as well. So I think just like the characters are as they're adults now with like their own families are getting up to more interesting stuff beyond the traditional coming of age story that we all know is quite familiar. So I just like, like being with them and also where we've expanded beyond the Naples region. We're now spending time in Pisa and Milan and Florence. So we're just kind of seeing more of Italy as well as these characters are branching off and uh, Lena is becoming much more successful. So I think it's the best season overall. I like it a lot. Uh, I think if you've watched the series or you read the book, this show does a really good job of making you dislike certain characters and be frustrated by character decisions in this case is absolutely uh nino saratore just the absolute fuck boy this guy sucks so hard and just cannot <laughs> leave the plot i can't stand it one of the most dislike uh easy to dislike characters i've seen on screen sometime and uh it's frustrating because he's not like an overt like dick he's more of like that subtle under the under the surface fuck boy because he thinks he's so smart and he's on the right side of history and all that stuff very i think they do a really good job of kind of building up this character or uh, you know breaking him down basically so uh that that was a uh, fun i think to just watch him pop up and be like i can't stand this guy please kick him to the curb uh, <laughs> alas i think i have to wait for season four for that to happen tbd there so yeah, I think um, obviously you'd have to start with season one. It's a very serialized show, but uh, I think it's definitely rewarding because the writing and the acting, I think you you kind of grow with the show. And it's really impressive to see our two leads, I think, be this good and be this compelling on the series because they were not professional actors when they were cast. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wouldn't know it watching the show. That's great. I mean, I know you raved about it last year. It's the show I, did, I have not gotten to catch up on, but is always on my radar and whenever you bring it up and say it's back, I get, I get excited because it's great that these sorts of stories are being told and that people are, are into right. it. So um, definitely something that I want to get to eventually and other people should too. So check it out. Um, we're going to move on to something that I think a few more people <laughs> have gotten to, which is better call Saul back for its sixth season, two years since we got the end of um, season five. Which feels kind of crazy because I there are still certain moments from season five that are so memorable <laughs> to mm. stand out. Um, I mean, it, I think in, in taking in the the first two episodes, which uh, when, when I went to go DVR this and I saw it was two hours and thirty minutes of episodes, I was like, "Wow, we're getting a full movie of Saul in the, in the opening here." I, I loved it, but at the same time, I was like, two hours thirty minutes is a lot of Saul yeah. to get through right away." It is, yeah, and just uncommon for the show to release this way two episodes at once for the premiere but also we know that we're only getting the first seven episodes in this run right now ending on may 23rd episodes 8 through 13 won't kick off until july 11th ending on august 15th so we're getting a split final season season six 
much like how Breaking Bad's final season was also split. But actually, this is a bit more common this year. The Ozark final season and Stranger Things season four are also doing split seasons this year. But, you know, I think spreading it out is is kind of awesome. It'll keep the Saul conversation going. But we're kind of assuming this is the main, if not true, final endpoint for this Breaking Bad, Saul, Heisenberg, Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould verse, right? Like, I, I can't, maybe we get another movie spinoff like El Camino. I don't really see the need for one. So in all likelihood, this is it. And uh, it's really exciting to, to be back and, and realize it's like the, how, how long we've been building up to this moment. Yeah, no, it's, it's really exciting. Um, and I, I think actually to go back to your point on the split season, it makes a lot of sense for where we expect this season to be going. We know that there's going to be some episodes or at least some scenes that go post, uh, you know, Saul Goodman um, into, oh boy, what's his name? Uh, it's like Jimmy Terry. McGill? No, it's it's uh, when, when his new uh, oh Gene Takavik when he's oh uh, oh yes Cinnabon work present timeline right yeah so we know that we're going to be getting uh, some of that um, we know that it's going to skip forward to um, some scenes with Cranston and, and Aaron Paul again which I. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm try, I'm very interested to see like 45 year old Aaron Paul. He might be a little younger than that, but playing like teenage Jesse Pinkman again, just <laughs> I feel like it could either be really hit or miss, but I have faith in their um, makeup team to make it look fine. Um, so uh, I think the split makes sense. I He's 42, there, by the way. <laughs> I, I expect <laughs> there to be something in like the mid season where there's some sort of schism and we start to see what goes on. But you know, in thinking about the season coming back, the one thing that stands out, and this is something people have said about Saul from the get-go, this is a true slow burn TV show that if you've stuck with it through the first, from the first season on, you're really getting a lot of rewarding payoff as the sixth season is coming around. I mean, hmm. not only is the opening of the season right in line with most of the other openings, you know, it shows them it looks like it's right after Saul gets kind of pinned with being the like big meth mover in, right. uh, in wherever that, I forget where they are. Uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Thank you. Uh, but like in, in the DEA is like confiscating stuff from his house. Right. But you see in all color these little, this time. Yeah. Not, uh, color, not like cool. the gene scenes in black and white, but you, you get these like uh little like moments. And especially as like, you see that tequila bottle top fall out, which kind of harkens back to this moment when, Jimmy and uh, Kim kind of get to almost kind of like start off on the path of where they they are starting season six as these two lawyers, but also people that are really bending the ethical uh, boundaries of their roles and and just as human beings in general. And um, obviously, I think uh, where this show seems to be going uh, is it really built you up for loving Kim and Rhea Seahorn does such a wonderful job of, oh, yeah. you know, making her just a dynamite character. Uh, but you kind of see that Kim is up a little bit more Saul than, than Saul is right now. Um, mm-hmm. She's kind of the one driving this bus, kind of creating this picture. And it's really devastating. And it's almost weird to see Jimmy go from being this guy who's lovable, but obviously has a lot of hard breaks and, uh, you root for, but also you realize pretty slimy to now him being like aghast at what he's created in Kim's mm. diabolicalness. It's, it's yeah. pretty uh, impressive. We'll see if that sticks. But uh, I mean, that was kind of the revelation of season five 
was that, oh, no, Kim is getting in on the Saul Goodman business. What happens to Kim Wexler has always been the question about this series because she's not in Breaking Bad. Whether she dies or not, we've, we've kind of been assuming the worst. Uh, and now we know that Kim is going to be directly involved in whatever ends up going down here. And season six is continuing uh, that. You know, I, I really enjoyed better, very better call Saul E to have this scheme to frame Howard Hamlin for being a cokehead. And we're bringing back the, uh, the Kettlemans from season yeah. one. Talk about payoff. But even this new reintroduction of the Kettleman family is about this, you know, this kind of slow burn thread that we come to expect of like their the the, the latest scheme from uh, Kim and Jimmy. So everything fell right in line with how Saul's been going. And I thought season five was the best season of the series. But now we're really meeting with Breaking Bad on the timeline scale and just kind of like the I feel like the narrative arcs and everything. You know, I was kind of uh, disappointed that they openly confirmed that Jesse and Walt were coming back. That would have been an amazing surprise had that happened. But nevertheless, I'm sure it'll it'll pay off uh, because Gilligan and Gould just they're not going to half-ass that something like that. You know, nope. <laughs> um, and there's we also have so much tension with uh, Ignacio with Nacho in terms yes. of just can he survive and escape Mexico and, and escape Lalo's wrath after Lalo survives at the end of season five. And I think we have such a relationship with Nacho and Michael Mando's performance that that's another like key bit of tension. And I really like how Better Call Saul has invested the audience in Kim Wexler in Nacho. Cause those are the people that we don't know their fates. We know what's, we know that Jimmy is going to make it through. We know that, Mike Ehrman Trout and Gus Fring are going to make it through Better Call Saul. But because we're so invested in Kim and Nacho, the plot is still super uh, tension-filled, and you just can't get enough of it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's a really good point about just, like, how they've really built these characters up. And Nacho is someone that I, nev- I didn't really ever feel invested in, but seeing him, like, running for his life and feeling so, like, in the middle between Gus and, and the Salamancas is just really uh you really feel for the guy because a lot of uh, a lot of tough people coming after him right now yeah. and i i thought his his arc in these two episodes was really impressive ending in that shootout was just uh really really well done and gilligan is so i mean just the way he writes is so impressive i mean the whole thing with like lalo going to see that that family right he's on the run he goes to the the wife mm-hmm. makes him the coffee sitting there Yes, I've been to that dentist and yeah, his teeth are all better. And you find out that he like was putting his teeth into this guy and basically making this like body double if he ever needed to have it to like disappear. It's just like, who the hell thinks of this sort of shit? And like, just like so well done and like the little way slips it in. Oh, man. And uh, just like done with so much style and like the, the framing of things, like the colors in it. You think about like Lalo in the desert with the the coyotes and wearing that like red bandana, um, and just like Timothy Dalton looking like a million bucks in every scene, even oh, when yeah. he's like shot up. It's just like every the the show is firing on all cylinders, and everything is just like bing bang boom. Every scene is dynamite, even when it's, there's not really that much going on. It's just uh, so well done. It's really impressive, and it's funny because we've talked about a lot of really good 
shows, I think, in, in the last couple of months, things that we've really enjoyed. But then you get something like this, or I'm looking forward to David Simon in his new show next week. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you, th- these guys are just on a different level. Like people don't don't do make shows like this all the time. So yeah. it's really I'm really glad to have Saul back. Hell yeah. And hopefully uh, Reese Horn will finally get an Emmy nomination for this <laughs> uh, role, let alone a win. Yeah. Uh, and, you Insane. know, uh, Bob Odenkirk, especially after the health scare, would not be shocked to see him get a best, a- 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 you know, best actor win. Yeah. Uh, lead actor win as well for this final season. So, you know, not that Gilligan needs the coronation all over again and Gould, but like, I think uh, Seahorn and Odenkirk would really be deserving of this. And, and Dalton as a supporting performer as well would be awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned Jonathan Banks as Mike, um, or at least we haven't talked about him that much. I, I just really love the scenes between Mike and Gus, you know, like when Mike is really like standing up to Gus, which is right. not as something we saw as much in Breaking Bad. And I just love how they are kind of fleshing out that dynamic in, in such a great way. Um, and Jonathan Banks, obviously, is great. Um, you know, just real quick, because I, I think everybody's expecting something to happen to Kim, whether it's Kim yeah. gets killed, Kim's something happens. Like, what, what would be your prediction? Do you think Kim is a goner? I, I do. Honestly, I feel like something bad's going to happen, right? But on the other hand, Jesse never died, you know? True. <laughs> Walt doesn't die until he redeems himself. So, like, I wouldn't be shocked to see her, like, get away. I, I, it's so hard, you know? I, I feel like however it happens, it's not going to be predictable. And that's I, what I want. I, I don't want to be able to see it coming. I almost feel, um, and I've, I was thinking about this a lot because I'm like, what, what's going to happen to Kim? This, this seems like the big question for me. I think it has to be, or I think it's going to be something like Jimmy, you know, and, and Kim get caught and Jimmy in some way just pins it right on Kim. And Kim is the one that like takes mm, the fall for all this. And it sucks. it's really Jimmy, like just accepting like that. He saw, he's this like person with no morals and just like totally terrible person. And Kim is catches the last like stray, like Jimmy mo- uh, in the salt transition. Right. That, I, right. I think it has to be something like that. Man, that would be gutting if that's the way it goes. Uh, it's 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 anything's on the table, which is why the show is also fun. So, uh, I hope people are checking it out. Drop your comments uh, on our YouTube on what what you liked about these first two episodes, what you're looking forward to, what your predictions are for the season. And Dave, we're moving from Saul to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and Dumbledore and his secrets because <laughs> Fantastic Beasts and the Secrets of Dumbledore came out this past weekend. it's back fantastic beast after almost three and a half years crimes of grindelwald was november 2018 fantastic beast 3 took a little longer to come out covid delays of course but they also took more time the creative side of things before they just ran this movie out to production it's finally here secrets of dumbledore and in a sense i really do feel bad for so much around this movie just because there's just so many things going on around this franchise you know Uh, obviously jk rowling has become a much more controversial figure for her views on uh, trans people yes in in the past few years uh also ezra miller very recently has been having 
tons of public uh, incidents and reportedly Warner Brothers is pausing all future work with him after The Flash comes out. And of course, Johnny Depp was recast as Grindelwald with Mads Mikkelsen due to his uh, domestic uh, situation with Amber Heard, which is uh, on trial right now still, you know, after the defamation lawsuit happened. So uh, a lot of a lot of stuff, you know, that's not what you want around a huge IP franchise that's supposed to be carrying a uh, a film studio like Warner Brothers. And uh, it, it's not what you want. Yeah, to, to speak to your Ezra Miller point, um, we're recording on uh, April 19th. And just just before recording, reports came out that he was arrested again in Hawaii. Yeah. I think it's the second or third time in like yeah. two months. So, uh, you know, I hope whatever he's going through, he gets help for. Obviously, it seems like he's just not in a good place at the moment. But yeah, really tough. Um, you know, the, the J.K. Rowling aspect of it all, just like very very hard to see her downfall go from this beloved author to right and and think about it like jk isn't promoting this film she has not promoted this movie once you can literally look up the last time she's tweeted the word beasts like she's not involved at all like she doesn't do the interview she left the premiere without watching it like she's there as like this this like thing that's hanging over the franchise at this point but even warner brothers like barely wants to touch her at this point even though she's the creative arbiter still it's it's really unfortunate yeah and you know just even to think about the other like like non-controversial aspects of this but Hmm. um (laughs) the movies haven't been great uh yeah i think johnny depp uh, obviously being a cloud over it but like i think johnny depp was one of the more like memorable like castings uh as grindelwald and mm. definitely to mixed uh you know i think results or yeah i have a firm negative view of that performance i thought yeah. Mads was much better man i mean i completely agree um you know you think about like eddie redmayne when he came into this series back mm. in 2016 and you're like oh eddie redmayne is helming the harry potter franchise what a look for him this is right after he won an oscar for the danish girl he was right yeah. He was in a, a, a skyrocket, you know, place upward. Uh, and since then, I mean, other than the trial of the Chicago seven, what has he really been in where you're like, Oh, Eddie Redmayne still got it. It's he's not moving in the right direction. Jude law might be the, the biggest person in this franchise uh, other than Mads now who is, you know, moving on an upward trajectory. So uh, not a lot going for it going into this movie. Mm. Did you feel like, Secrets of Dumbledore righted the franchise. Let me just say, too, Redmayne actually won for Theory of Everything and was nominated for The Danish Girl. But your point still stands. Uh, I think The Secrets of Dumbledore, Fantasy Beast 3, I think this is a improvement on 2, The Crimes of Grindelwald. But overall, I think this franchise, as a spinoff franchise, Harry Potter, as a prequel franchise, three films in, Rowling had expressed that she wanted to make five. I just think that we're really seeing the struggle of what Fantastic Beasts is and like as a franchise, it just doesn't have the forward momentum and a lot of the issues that I think people have had with the movies, no matter how much they've liked them, just like the the issues people have had with this series. None of that is solved after Secrets of Dumbledore, even if it's a better film than its predecessor. So I, I thought it was just fine, but like, 
I think the franchise is just really in need of a retool, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, that that they framed this as like the Fantastic Beast story when it's so far from that. I mean, they're, they're still like Fantastic Beasts included in this, you know, magical creatures. But right. they're really just like a secondary part of this. And it's it's the, the Dumbledore Grindelwald story, which is what it should have always been named you know obviously they're going off i think one of the books that yes. rowling has published but um it yeah. almost it has to be somewhere to find them it was like a in in universe text yes. that like harry had and then rowling actually made like a real life you know fake reference book for me and you yeah. to buy at the bookstore and thus that spawned a five film franchise a book yeah. about a magic magic zoologist and i think that, that that was that was the core problem you know yeah. and I mean, even by the time Crimes of Grindelwald happened, it's like, wow, Newt and his gang, this is a major crutch on this series. It's really just bringing it all down. And in Secrets of Dumbledore, Newt is barely the protagonist at this point and clearly doesn't need to be protagonist anymore if you were to make more movies because the important stuff he's only related to because you decide to write him back into the story. Like, it's just not, it's, it's just very confusing. Yeah, this is just the, the Dumbledore story at this point, which is is fine if they wanted to just go that route, because it's definitely the thing that I was most interested interested in from the get go with this franchise. It, anyways, to like as we go into it, I think there's a lot to, to nitpick with, but we should start in a positive place. I think hmm. like you, you said that it, there were definitely some some parts about this that were better than other installments. I agree. I think that that there's some aspects of this that I found to be more enjoyable, more fun um just so even some like set pieces that i thought were a lot more um intriguing than and memorable but uh, well i'll let you kind of take the floor like what were the things that you thought it did better than previous movies well yeah the obvious one is grindelwald yes uh, Matt mickelson <laughs> coming in to replace johnny depp he was cast with like two days to decide right in the midst of production starting like they warner brothers really had to fix this on the fly matt's talked a bit about that process but Mads Mikkelsen, you know, he's, if you think about it, he's now been in damn near every Hollywood franchise, Star Wars, Bond, Marvel, Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, he still makes his independent movies as well. Awesome actor. Yeah. He brings to Grindelwald what he brings to basically all of his franchise roles, where it's stated understatement, a bit of minimalism in his performance. Mads Mikkelsen has such presence without being this like showy, theatrical buffoon that late period Johnny Depp is you know I thought Mads was really awesome as in, in this movie I really liked how the movie starts off uh, establishing this kind of like alternate dimension that like Dumbledore can have establish and them having that conversation over tea in the fake restaurant I thought that was yeah. awesome and Mads throughout I think re- really carries it and he carries all his scenes because he just has such a presence such a gravity that uh uh, to bring to the performance and bring to the role yeah he really brings like a, a menacing presence in such a um a unique way that only really he can and it just makes so much sense you know you think about like villains and like how in kids things you know they're, they're so over the top kind of like johnny depp but when you get get to like a more mature story villains are uh, or people who might be seen as a villain are usually more like understated and cunning and uh mm. not as like lambastic and drawing attention to themselves so he's a perfect cast for this i think and i agree i think he's very strong in his scenes 
Um, I think Drew Law is pretty good. You know, I think that I, I don't think it's a perfect performance from him. I think Dumbledore as a character is such a complicated character at this point with all the lore yeah. that has been ascribed to him from Rowling that it's like, how do you really play such a layered and complicated person? But I think Law does it pretty well. Right. Yeah. He's at least doing his best. You know, we have, we have such, we don't have any exposure to young Dumbledore. We only kind of know him as he was introduced to us originally as kind of the, you know, archetypal fatherly wizard figure. Right. And then we learn about so much depth and, and flaws to the Dumbledore character later on in the series. And I, I think we only like in spurts actually get that in the Fantastic Beasts 2 and 3, which is a, a, a bit of an issue. Like, this movie is called The Secrets of Dumbledore, but we don't really get into the secrets, not in a meaningful way. Like, yes, a few things are answered and, like, the box is checked, but if anything, I feel like a lot of the canonical resolution of Secrets of Dumbledore is more or less just closing loops that Crimes of Grindelwald had, like, blatantly opened more than anything else. And that's not Law's fault, but you know, I think the greater issue with this series is that J.K. Rowling has been at the helm of the screenplays. This time around, for Fantastic Beasts 3, you also have Steve Cloves, who is a Harry Potter scribe as well, writing for every Harry Potter film except for Order of the Phoenix. And yet, J.K. Rowling doesn't seem to really have all her wires crossed, even though this is her baby. She's very much in, like, prequel George Lucas land, I feel like. And mads and law they can you know do their best and i even think eddie redmayne plays the new character well i feel like new new can be a bit annoying at times but i think eddie eddie does a good job because that's what he's supposed to be portraying him as you know yeah no i i I agree i i think uh i think he does a pretty good job as well uh with new i just want to go back to dumbledore real quick i think the title is more of a um uh, nod to the collective Dumbledores in this, Everforth and Aurelius, um, yes. which is, <laughs> I gotta say, the whole like credence thing has just been fumbled right from the get go. Sucks. Like, it sucks so much. Terrible. And like to like all of a sudden make this the twist is just like, yeah. So and, I. And now credence is, uh, he's gone, you know? <laughs> it didn't amount <laughs> to fucking anything. Yeah, I know. Kind, kind of crazy that, that also like he's killed off in this, like right as Ezra Miller is like. Yeah. Being like, I mean, they didn't have to like write them out, out anyway in between movies. It was like, okay, you're done. Cool. Worked out great for them. Right. Um, like just like, and we can get into the more canned stuff later, but like just the way that they, you know, introduced Credence Barebone in, in the first movie, Ezra Miller, you know, a hot piece of casting at the time, like introducing this new phenomenon in the Harry Potter world, the Obscurus, the Obscurial. Later on, we're retconning that phenomenon to be a big part of the Ariana Dumbledore character and trying to fill in a gap from the existing Potter canon. Not necessarily a gap that need to be filled, but at least providing an answer for the fans. But the thing, the issue is that like Credence himself, Aurelius himself, like it never amounted to anything. And we saw right through it at the end of Crimes of Grindelwald, where Grindelwald says, you're Dumbledore, your name's Aurelius, however he says it, right? It's like, we all knew that that was fucking bullshit all over again. Yep. You know, and they, you know what? They're like, you know what? Oh, you're not a sibling. You're, you're, you're Albus Dumbledore's nephew. You're Aberforth's son. It's like, oh, it's like, you're just making a convenient answer to a stupid 
question we didn't need to have asked in the first place. It's just, it's, I think it's just really frustrating. Again, the Rowling doesn't have her finger on the pulse as well as she clearly thinks she does. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot to be frustrated with. I, I just want to say with some of the positives, I do think there's some cool like set pieces in this, you know, um, the, the scene where they kind of go like undercover um, to that, mm-hmm. that dinner, that like political dinner that Grindelwald's yeah. at. And, um, you know, Jessica Jones as uh, what was one of the professors. Name? Yeah. Uh, man, what was that professor? Oh, it was Presser Lolly. Something? Lolly Hicks. Oh, Hicks. Um, yeah. yeah, Professor Hicks. Um, her and uh, Jacob. Jacob yeah. Kowalski. We kind of mm-hmm. got it. I loved that scene. I thought that was fun. You know, and like a real like kind of escape scene I thought was nice. I also thought the ending was was pretty cool where they have this like animal that's going to like pick the true one. I thought that was a little bit corny, but I kind of liked the like walking to this place. And like as they're walking, they each have these these briefcases and like they're kind of getting taken out one by one. I really liked that build up and then leading Mm -hmm. to like a a final duel between Dumbledore and and Grindelwald. I thought it was a decent payoff. Yeah. Um, so I, I really liked those set scenes and the, the CGI, I think, was was decent. So I, I thought that was like, a, you know, something that maybe in past movies wasn't always uh, done well and that they did at least passable here. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give them credit for that. How did you feel about the brief interludes where we returned the Hogwarts? To me, it's just like it's kind of like bully and like nostalgia play. It's like here we are in the room of requirements because yeah. you watching this know what that means. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like we didn't have to go there at all. I would love to be in Hogwarts in the HBO max series in development, because then we'd go there in a meaningful way. But this yeah. is just like blatant, like brief fan service for no reason. I, my, my favorite one of those was when uh, Dumbledore and Aberforth are having dinner and they get a knock at the door and yep. you know, it's this person de- delivering news. And right before it's like, Thank you, Minerva. And it's like, oh, it's McGonagall. Oh, young McGonagall, <laughs> who gets one scene and then is gone. It's like, okay, right. cool. Just uh, like a right. second movie. Yeah. So, so, so stupid. I, I hate when they do that. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of like, okay, what are we doing here? Just kind of tying this in. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that there's a lot to pick through here. And the first one I want to say is like, there's too many people in this. There's too many people we have to care about and know that, know who they are. I couldn't. I, uh, for like half the movie, I like kept forgetting who Co- Colin Turner is supposed to be. I think he was even, yeah, I think he was even in the last movie. I just was he like, was who? yeah, he was who? the one who what? was married to or engaged to Letter of Strange, Zoe Kravitz character. Yeah, I, I think like like I said, like Newt's Newt's whole gang is a huge crutch on the series, and we really saw that manifest in two, of course. And they make a very specific choice in Secrets of Dumbledore, where Catherine Waterson's character, uh, Tina is not in the movie, basically. It's like, okay, you're, you're trimming down the cast. Oh, wait, no, you're not. We're just going to get way more Theseus and tons of Kama, too, who was introduced in a super confusing way in the last movie and we have no relationship to still. Like, I, yeah, I think that's, a, that's an issue. It's like, you don't really, like, love the ensemble. It's not that they performance. There's issues with the performances. It's just, like, those characters you're just not super engaged with. It, it, it's a bit frustrating. Honestly, I feel like Kowalski is the one I like the most just because oh, yeah. Dan Fogler is perfectly playing the comic relief and like the punchline stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, but it's funny, like that the punchline is basically like, you're a dumb muggle. That's kind of it, but you got a heart and that's, that's what makes you special. It's like, okay, 
cool i guess <laughs> like yeah. uh you know i i i definitely just feel like there's way too many people you have to keep track of um you know i i, I didn't like the choice to like make queenie on grindelwald's side i was just kind of like I didn't really care that much to begin with. I was like, this just feels kind of annoying to have this like back and forth now. Also them like getting married at the end. I thought it was a little bit like hokey and just didn't care about right. whatever. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it was kind of interesting too. It's like, she's a legitimate, but then Grindelwald actually has this like clairvoyant ability. It's like, it was just kind of weird to like keep all that straight for me just because I feel like there's unnecessary um, like clutter almost. However, I did like how I think Secrets of Dumbledore kind of pulls off the whole we can't tell anyone the entire plan because Grindelwald will figure it out over time by these visions so it's all going to be nebulous to you and thus nebulous to the audience as well I actually think they handle that like as well as they could and it's it's pretty fun watching things actually pan out and you figure out how everything's working and happening that was that, that was pretty cool yeah and, um, and and to that point I think that actually builds out a bit of the Dumbledore like plot holes in the harry potter books how he like would never tell anybody the full you know story and like how right. he kind of came to create this pattern of only giving little bits yeah. to people on his team go on yeah yeah no totally um and i think for me visually i i wish this movie i wish it just popped more you know it's like i feel like it's a bit it's a bit grayer and darker than i want it to be it's not that it's bad cgi per se it's like bad color grading or like Ooh. like the tones i just don't I just don't love it you know I, I wish like like even like when we have like the, the the fake dimensional duel at the end between grindelwald and dumbledore it's like super washed out and gray it's like not as eye-popping as i want it to be i don't know so yeah i think visually these movies can certainly improve i think the effects for the beasts are, are always really good I think yeah. the Chillum as a new introduction was was was, was nice, but yeah, re- really tough for the the baby Chillum to get uh, its throat cut in the first like I don't know ten minutes. Really, really yeah. tough. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this? I feel pretty pretty mad about this this franchise at this point. Yeah, well, I think that there's a lot of other canon implications due to this movie and how it reacts to two, namely. The secrets of Dumbledore, the secrets, learning about the secrets. Uh, we get a bit of a retcon with the duel between Grindelwald, Aberforth, and Albus that leads to Ariana's death. And they kind of restate how Ariana died and like kind of removing some culpability from Dumbledore this time around. It's, you know, I guess you could say like because there's just the way Dumbledore is just like telling it to someone. I forget who he's talking to in the movie. That's just kind of like secondhand. He's just kind of speaking. But like, I feel like that kind of changes that dynamic because Aberforth had a lot of resentment towards Albus at the end of Harry Potter. And he doesn't seem to hold nearly that much resentment in Fantastic Beasts 3. So why would he dislike him more when the death already happened? I don't know. I thought that was a bit off, bit off. Um, also, the thing with the Chillum, I thought was interesting. I didn't really notice this myself. I saw this pointed out. The Chillum initially nods or bows to Dumbledore because he's pure of heart and thus should be leading the Confederation of Wizards, right? But I think w- one thing we know about Albus Dumbledore through Harry Potter is that he's super flawed and not totally pure of heart. He's a selfish person. 
And I don't know, like, does don't you feel like that kind of t- changes the perception of Dumbledore a little bit? This magical beast <laughs> communicating yeah. that he actually is like super good. Not that he's not good, but like there there was a bunch a bit more gray in Dumbledore understanding of the character, at least before, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think there definitely was. I, th- I think this is a symptom of just the, the fact that they haven't gone into this with any clear vision. And so now it's like, yeah. how do we save this series? You got to pretty much like double down on people's loving Jude Law's Dumbledore. And so they, yep. they kind of have to do this, uh, but it is it is confusing. And I thought that was a good point about um, the, the Aberforth and Albus dynamic because, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I noticed that in the movie when he's like, we we couldn't tell whose spell it was that hit her. It could have been mine. And it was like, well, I thought it was pretty clear that like it was your fault. So yeah, the Harry Potter book. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you can pass the buck if you want. I think Everforth is right. definitely blaming you. Also, I think perhaps the most monumental of all from a plot perspective would be, um, I don't know, the unbreakable vow between Albus Dumbledore and Gellert Grindelwald. The reason that they don't have their big duel until 1945, like 10 years after Fantastic Beasts 3. But at the end of Fantastic Beasts 3, the, the, the vow is just broken. Dumbledore can go uh, stop him anytime. But we're going to wait for World War II to happen first now. Okay, fine. But the reason the breakable vow gets broken at the very end is just reasons, honestly. Just, 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 just love, I guess. He just kind of like offhandly mentions love. Is that supposed to be a reference to how Harry Potter survives the killing curse because the love of his parents? Is that what that's supposed to mean? Probably. Because because previously no one else had ever stopped a killing curse before, except for Harry Potter. No one else survived it. In this movie, Aberforth and Albus divert the killing curse from Grindelwald, and then the vow breaks in the process. And in the very beginning of this movie, the fucking Chillum survives the curse initially. It's supposed to kill you instantly. I guess they're just super magical. I don't know. They are they are super magical. <laughs> they're they're fantastic beasts, I would say. And yeah. uh we, we now know where to find them. And uh you now know where to find this review on uh soundcloud.com, youtube.com. Follow us there. So, Dave, we do have a little bit more to go though. I just want to ask you about Harry Potter real quick. Oh boy. <laughs> what do you think the future of this franchise is? We know that Fantastic Beats 4 has not been written and that the box office and the success and reception to this third Fantastic Beast movie was going to determine that. Box office is down from Fantastic Beats 2, which was One in general point. down from Harry Potter's highs. Under do you 20. think we see more Fantastic Beast films? Do you think we just wait this out until the HBO Max series or series are developed? Do we fast track a li- uh, Cursed Child? film with the original cast where are we going uh, i think i think we see one final installment i think they'll probably be like we have to we have to wrap this up um you know we got mads and jude law they'll they'll finish it but mm. uh, man i i don't i don't really care to see it not this wasn't a movie i was looking forward to at all so uh right. I, I would be okay if they stop but what, what's your call i, I don't think we get anymore so i i a lot of people have been saying this secrets of dumbledore kind of ends in a bit of a finality you know it's not a cliffhanger the way two was and one was for sure uh three could be the end and it's like okay you know he he'll we know he duels grindelwald later we just won't see it i could totally see it going that way and i told i also wouldn't mind either because i would be very invested in an hbo max series done right which we've talked about before when that was reported in early 2021 you know 
just a Hogwarts series set at a different time would be awesome. Law and Order, the famed uh, police procedural. Yeah. Police procedural would be awesome. I don't know. I feel like Cursed Child movie is a bit too soon still. They kind of need mm-hmm. like Radcliffe and Grint and Emma Watson to get a little older still, I think, for that to work. Yeah. But you know they'll, they'll make that at one point and they'll, they'll print when they do finally make that. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's it's sad that this beloved franchise is just kind of in this place where we're like, well, let, let's hope the TV show is good. You know, it's yeah. like, didn't have to be this way. <laughs> it's kind of where we're at with Star Wars, you know? It's, TV's carrying us right now. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know. Well, I mean, Star Wars at least had a few good other movies. Rogue One. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's definitely not yeah. the same, of course. Um, yeah. And we, we saw the, the Hogwarts Legacy video game coming out soon. I have high hopes for that. But, uh, We'll be hearing from Harry Potter, and again, it's not like this is the end forever and ever. Well, uh, you know who is not the end for? The XXL freshman. And Dave, it's that time of year again where we start to figure out who's going to be on the cover. And I'm I'm saying we, but really I'm going to say you. I mean, you're really the guru here. You, you usually get uh, a pretty high percentage of them correct. Have the exact so, stats right here for you, my friend. Hell yeah. Check the tape. No YouTube channel does better at predicting XXL than Nostalgia. 2017, 7 out of 10 right. 2018, 8 out of 9 right. 2019, 6 out of 11. 2020, 6 out of 12, and we only picked 10. 2021, 6 out of 11. Who's got better stats than that at picking XXL freshmen? Those are the receipts. Subscribe. You know, in, in looking through the uh, the list of the, the short list on xxl.com where you can vote for the, the, the 10th freshman. Yeah. Voting has since ended, but the list is still available. There were less uh, names here that I recognized than usual. Um, and I usually kind of put, put the onus on you to kind of keep me present with uh, my, my up-and-coming rapper listening. And so I got to say, I, I blame you. For me not knowing more of these people, but I also give you credit because the fact that I knew any of them, I think, is, is a success to you as well. So uh, where, where should we start with this? Who do you think are the locks for this year? Right. Yeah, we'll start with the locks. But I think in general, this is the first year in a while where I felt there are very few locks this year, or at least less locks than normal. Mm. And in general, I think it's a harder year to predict. And that really just kind of depends on the talent bubbling up. And not that there's there's tons of hip hop talent. Again, the list on the website's like what 50, 60 people. Like yep. there's there's tons of people to just select. I think less people have like truly like risen up as high as we've expected freshmen to go uh in, in recent years. Nowadays, though, there's still a lot of I think common through lines you can bank on. Almost all of these artists are already signed. A lot of these artists have success already. And a big part of that now is big TikTok virality. But you'll see people with big numbers on in this consideration. So we're definitely in a different era where XXL is not. It's still a great cosign and great, uh, you know, uh, public like uh, promotion for an artist. But it's not as you know important as it once was. You know, before social media, before TikTok, especially. That being said, I think there's a lot of artists that make a lot of sense for this recognition in terms of locks. I only have a few and we can start with Nardo Wick. I think he is perhaps the safest pick here. 20 years old, Florida rapper from Jacksonville signed to RCA records. 
everyone watching and listening probably will know the song Who Wants Smoke. The uh, clip from that was a big TikTok sound, the duh, 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 what the fuck is that thing. Very, very uh, memorable on TikTok. But the song in general, super successful, peaked to like number 17, remix with Dirk and 21 and Herbo, uh, you know, platinum song. Nardo dropped his debut back in December. He's kind of the perfect selection here. He's young, really new in his career, has that that blockbuster song already. And this is kind of the acknowledgement that there's there's more to come here. He should be a freshman. 5.6 million monthly listeners. So not 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 that he he's not not a uh, you know unknown or anything, obviously. Uh, but I think he's an important pick too because he reps specifically Jacksonville, Florida. We talk a lot about Florida hip hop with young people, specifically the SoundCloud wave of the past five years. Big Genesis in Florida, of course, starting with like Denzel Curry, obviously. Jacksonville, though, is kind of this newer subculture in hip hop, in Florida hip hop. Seeing a lot of these guys with very grim, you know, kind of trap subject matter, like Young Nace and Spinna Benz and stuff. And I think Nardo Wick is the one who's kind of risen up above them. Spot him, got him, another one there. I think he's clearly the best choice, but you'd be representing a hot scene in hip hop right now. So it makes all the sense to go with him. Yeah. And, and just with the, the people who have been on these songs with him, 21, G Herbo, Future, Lil Baby. I mean, maybe not people that we love as rappers other than probably 21, but still a, a great co-sign that people of that level are hopping mm-hmm. on these tracks with him. So uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, who wants smoke? I think everybody who's been on TikTok probably knows this song. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely a, a good pick. Who's the other locks for you? Yeah, so I think Dochi is a lock for me, but she's not super well known, so you never know. I think the reason Dochi is a good lock is because she signed the TDE. She signed the Top Dog Entertainment. She's their newest signee. Also signed the Capitol Records. Um, Schoolboy Q was tweeting about her recently. Doja Cat on the Grammy red carpet talked about wanting to work with Dochi. And look no further. She also has a TikTok hit. Yucky Blucky Fruitcake. Awesome song. Yeah. Has a few EPs out. She was featured on the Isaiah Rashad album last year, of course, or uh, before she was actually on the label, I believe. And she's released a few uh, songs this year. Now, now as TDE songs, 1.6 million monthly listeners, still plenty of room to grow. But I think like that TDE co-sign it's like a really big acknowledgement. They don't sign just anyone, of course. And if you think about it, like all the recent TDE rappers are the best ones, you know, they've all been freshmen too back in the day. All the Black Hippie guys, as well as Isaiah Rashad, they were all XXL one point. So you assume that the label's still interested in this. So I would think Dochi would uh, be a nice pick. And uh, you know, if you listen to her, she's got a lot of versatility too, a bit of Doja Cat in her. She can definitely do some singing stuff. It's not like she's just a rapping ass rapper she can do both so i think very interesting career to watch yeah dochi i think uh, um yeah out of the ones that you sent me beforehand were really popped off as like it really caught my ear and you mentioned that like flexibility a song like yucky blucky fruitcake is so different than like what you said what you said and then spooky coochie great name <laughs> for a song but like she just goes so hard and it's such a different flow and, and delivery on it. it's just uh you know really impressive for versatility i think she makes a lot of sense as a lock for this as well right well totally. she got so not a lock but on xxl's list you do see h the uk 
rapper from Manchester, 22 years old. XXL has never selected a British rapper for the list. They put people on the uh, shortlist before, though. Slow Tie was listed last year, but not selected. Uh, he should have been, in my opinion. Uh, this year, I think there's plenty of other picks you could go with. Artie, Central C, they're not on the short list. I think Central C would be an awesome selection, of course. H is there, though. And uh, I think he would be an awesome pick just because he is so hot in England. And he has so much appeal that I feel like he should be able to blow up in the U.S. as well. It would make a lot of sense. I mean, my favorite song of his is his biggest song, Rain, with AJ Tracy. Just goes so hard. But he just put out a single recently called Baby with Ashanti, gearing up for his debut album. He has, a few, he has a few mixtapes coming out. Lots of big cosigns over in the UK. He was on the Heady One album. He was on the Stormzy album. He was on the Artie mixtape. Already 6.1 million monthly listeners. He's finding an audience, even if most of it's probably over across the pond still. So I think it would be a really nice acknowledgement that UK hip hop is a big aspect of uh, rap hip-hop these days. In general, yeah. B- bigger, b- as big as it's ever been, honestly. So he-, he would be an awesome pick. But I wouldn't call it a lock given the history of the list. Yeah, we just, uh, I think you mentioned this. We just talked about him on uh, the RD album, uh, War Certified Banger. Uh, a couple of these other tracks you mentioned are also certified bangers. I didn't see that he did a song with Ashanti recently. Mm-hmm. What a look. Good for him. Uh, Dave, so one of the other names you put on here that just caught my eye and listening, I thought was really good. And probably because we were just talking about Harry Potter, is Babytron. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the song Half Blood Prince with that Harry Potter, you know, like keys in the beginning. I was like, ooh, here we yeah. go. This is pretty, pretty interesting. Yep. I think Babytron will be a really awesome pick, but also I think a really smart pick. You look at Babytron on Spotify. He's put out seven mixtapes since 2017. He's an independent artist. He only has like 350,000 monthly listeners. Small per, per those standards, but he's not, he doesn't have any label support. However, super prolific. Does a lot of funny things, like you said, sampling the Harry Potter theme, for example. Babytron, though, 21-year-old, he's representing two, I think, important scenes here. One, the Michigan, Detroit, slash Flint uh, scene, which is its own distinct sound. It's been very hot as well as uh, scam rap. Lyrically, he's all about scam rap. He sounds a lot like his fellow, uh, you know, Detroit uh, scammer, TJX6. I've talked about like scam being on the XXL list before. They didn't pick TJX6. They didn't pick Dad 4000. Now it seems like it's Babytron's turn to be picked. And he's got so many, so much material out there. And he's finding success with some of these songs, despite no label support. I think it would be a, an awesome pick because you're representing two scenes and you're also giving a nice look to someone that could certainly be a bigger artist than he is right now, despite being, you know, popping online. So I wouldn't call it a lock, but I think it would be a, be a nice pick. Yeah. And you know, he, you mentioned that scam rap uh, con- content. He, he's just like funny, like listening to some yeah. of these lyrics, it just really makes yeah. you crack up listening. So S- super punchline driven, super reference heavy, which is unlike some of his peers on this potential list. So I think it serves a lot of needs to pick him. Kind of like early, like Childish Gambino, almost in a sense, not as like melodic, but like mm-hmm. kind of in that same vein. Um, all right. So who else you got on your list here? Who else can make it? So this is someone who is not a lock, but probably would be if it was up to XXL. And that would be Yeet. 
Yi is 22 years old from Los Angeles area, so- SoCal. Does melodic trap in like the vein of like an Uzi vert. And he is really hot online, really popping online. Two albums, four tapes, uh, Simon Giffen Records. Sorry about that. Big hit. He's got a bunch of like big internet hits in terms of this like melodic croony trap. And he's got a huge like rabid fan base. He's like really rapidly going. The thing though is I don't think he's going to accept the list because he previously like talked about turning down an invitation performance rolling loud. It just kind of feels like him and his team aren't into like the more traditional like industry stuff, even though he's signed to a label. I have a feeling he would turn this list down, but given like how quickly he's risen the past few years and, you know, 7.1 million monthly listeners, I feel like he would be a big pick, but it just doesn't seem like he wants to go down this route, but definitely worth acknowledging because he would be, you know, definitely up for it this year. Uh Interesting. I, I like that him and his team are going uh, non-traditional with it. I think that is something that, especially with all the issues Rolling Loud has had, makes a lot of sense and probably a good uh, good left turn there. All right, so who, who's up next? Yeah, so after that, I only have a few other locks here. Uh, I think one of them would be Coach Ice, just because Coach Ice is like getting pretty mainstream here. He has... 6.2 million monthly listeners. The song Tell Him went platinum. Pete 64. Signed Columbia Records. I actually saw him open up for Amine on his uh, best tour ever stop when I saw Amine. Coach Ice serves a other need as well where he is like the auto-tune trap. He is in the vein of current Playboy Cart. That's what he's doing. Uh, yeah. So I, I heard that, that. Yeah. Yeah. Not that it's my favorite thing, but it's a popular sound right now. So I think you are definitely like serving a need, checking a box by picking him. He's like the best pick of this kind of thing right now. Kind of, kind of similarly, like that kind of like thought process would be uh, Sofago. Sofago is signed to Cactus Jack Records, aka he signed to Travis Scott. His song "Knock Knock," 170 million views, uh, streamed in Spotify, 2.6 million monthly listeners. He's got three tapes out. Same kind of thing, like these, like kind of like, like moody, auto tuny, croony trap stuff. Like, there's so much appetite for that kind of hip hop right now that I feel like you really have to acknowledge it on the list. And so, Fago, you know, he has the Travis cosign. Then again, XSL passed over Sheck West due to his legal issues at the time. Don Tolliver turned it down last time. So who knows? Maybe he's not interested in, in the list because his label contemporaries haven't done it either. Not sure. But I think he would be a nice pick. I also think I saw on the list Fredo Bang was there. He's one of the older artists uh, on the long list there. Just kind of a traditional Southern trapper. He has a lot of music out. He signed the Def Jam. I think he's a, a solid selection. But that's the thing. Like I, I'm kind of I'm out of locks here. and We haven't really hit 10. But there's a lot of people I could see making it. I think it's just going to be hard to actually really like nail this down at this point. So from there, you know, I, I would just acknowledge that they're probably going to pick someone from New York. Last year it was Fabio Foreign repping BK Drill. Pop Smoke was going to be on it the year before if he hadn't passed. This year, not really sure who they're going to pick. On the list on the website was Dusty Locane, who I actually talked about on last year's list video. And Dusty Locane is like a pop smoke ripoff in the sense that he is like the same exact voice and is kind of like biting how pops like pop smokes delivery and stuff like that. 
not my favorite pick. The other, I thought the other option though are uh, some guys from the Bronx repping, repping like New York drill who they're rising, but I don't know if they're there yet. That'd be B love and K flock. K flock just got the Cardi feature. Cardi doing a drill feature just came out last week. I'm not sure if one of those guys would be picked, but honestly, I feel like B love who has like the A boogie co-sign as a fellow Bronx site. I feel like he's a more interesting pick than Dusty Locane, who's just like ripping off pop smoke, honestly. Um, so Definitely something to watch because they're on all of you going to pick someone from New York. Also, I don't think they're going to pick him, but he was on the website. Tizo touchdown. He was featured on Todd the creators album last year. Call me if you get lost. Very much a genre blendy hip hop person in the vein of like Kenny Mason. If you check out his music, not super mainstream would be a really inspired pick. Uh, don't think they're going to go there though, but I would definitely like to see them do it. Uh, also, I saw it listed uh, on the website. Smiley who no one is like super like into that much, I don't think. But he signed OVO Sound, Drake co-signed. Uh, that might be all it takes. You never know. Uh, so why don't we just like recap here the ones that seem like locks for you? So I I heard Nardo Wick and Dochi seem like the top two, no yeah. no doubters. Then H is yep. probably up there. Babytron. Yep. Coach Ice yep. and Sofago. Yeet but may not accept the nav- the yep. pick. And then you mentioned Tizo touchdown, Frito Bang, Dusty yep. Locaine, and Cash Dami. Is that yep. right? Yeah, that so yeah, Cash Dami is another one where like not super big, 1.3 million monthly listeners, but his song Reparations is really big. And that's kind of the themes. Like there's a lot of people that you can make a case for where like they have a bit of success and they'll probably really appreciate the look of the XXL list because they still have a platform to build. Um, but yeah, I think this is going to be one where the last few picks are probably going to surprise people. And of course, people turning it down factors into that as well. But, you know, if you look on the website, you'll see people that I talked about last year, like 2K Baby and Little Easy. I feel like they're kind of in holdover sass at this point, though. You're just going to pick someone newer. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw a lot of love for Ken Carson online. Like there, there's a lot of people. So I'm, I'm actually just very interested to see what this cover looks like whenever it comes out, assumingly in June just because it's a hard one to pick this year. Well, if you, if you're betting, Dave just gave you a bunch of picks to win a lot of money. So take his advice. The man is good at what he does. That's going to wrap it up for us this, this week, Dave, but what do we got for next week? Next week, push a T album. First one in nearly four years. Very exciting. Also the return of Barry season three. The return of David Simon on HBO, We Own the City, The Northman, Robert Eggers, third film, yeah. Viking epic. Great reviews, very exciting. Uh, Russian Doll is coming out tomorrow on Netflix, season two, Natasha Leone. Love the first season, very excited to see what the second season's about, honestly. Uh, also, The Unbreakable Weight of Massive Talent, Nick Cage movie, critically acclaimed coming out uh, wide this weekend following up pig the cage renaissance continues things are heating up into the summer my man looking forward to all of it hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgic pod uh and also five star reading on spotify we'll catch you next week yeah.